Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This is Dr. Todd Schlesinger for Dialogues in Dermatology, and today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Brett King and Dr. Bill Damsky. Dr. King is Associate Professor of Dermatology at Yale University, and Dr. Damsky is completing his Dermatopathology Fellowship and will join the faculty there in July. Dr. King is a clinician and Dr. Damsky, a physician scientist, and together they have published extensively on the use of JAK inhibitors for dermatological diseases, including recent work in granulomatous diseases, including sarcoidosis and granuloma annulare, which will be the topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Dr. King and Dr. Damsky. Thank you very much. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Today, we're going to be speaking about the JAD article entitled Janus Kinase Inhibition Induces Disease Remission in Cutaneous Sarcoidosis and Granuloma Annulare. Now, these are some conditions that we uh, see in our clinic as well, and I think that many dermatologists would see these conditions. And I think we're seeing an uptick in the investigation of the less common and then also more common dermatological diseases. So it's a very interesting topic, and I was glad to be able to read the article. I have a number of questions for you, as you know. My first question is regarding cutaneous sarcoidosis and granuloma annulare, those both being rare dermatological conditions for which there is no established treatment approach. Why is it important for the practicing dermatologist to know the JAK-STAT pathway that's being studied in these conditions? So, Todd, there are two answers to this question. The first is to note the similarities in sarcoidosis and granuloma annulare, but also the differences between them. Both of these diseases are granulomatous diseases, but in the case of sarcoidosis, there is internal organ involvement, and in the case of GA, there isn't. So the fact that they are both granulomatous diseases may mean that treatment of one may work in the other, but in their differences may be clues to systematization of disease or why does a disease affect the skin versus the skin and internal organs. The second question is that targeting the JAK pathway seems not only to be important for the treatment of GA and sarcoidosis, but also numerous other dermatological diseases, including atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, alopecia areata, vitiligo, lichen planus, and other diseases. And so having familiarity with this pathway and the medicines that are coming along that target this pathway are going to be really important for all dermatologists. It's fascinating to know this is such an important pathway that we're now seeing so much research in. So, you know, in the article, you you looked at some treatment-resistant cases. So there were three cases that are there, and some were treatment-resistant cutaneous sarcoidosis and the one granuloma annulare patient, which were treated with tofacitinib, which is off-label. So my question is going to be, what were the outcomes? Uh, Did that differ from what you expected to see? And what did you see in, in terms of adverse effects? And tying into that, I also noticed that you published a case report in JAD case reports recently that showed a single patient with more limited granuloma annulare that you treated with compounded tofacitinib. What happened there? So the story started a few years ago with a patient with widespread sarcoidosis who had failed numerous therapies, including adalimumab, which Again, there are no excellent therapies for the treatment of uh, sarcoidosis, though we commonly use corticosteroids. 
But again, this patient had failed all other things, including adalimumab. And there was some literature suggesting that there might be importance of the JAK-STAT pathway in sarcoidosis. And so I thought to use tofacitinib in this patient. And really amazingly, her skin disease melted away uh, over the course of treatment. She subsequently came off of treatment and her disease came back. She went back on treatment. Her disease melted away. And then on the third pass with tofacitinib, Dr. Damsky and I started to work together and we took biopsies before her third cycle of treatment and then subsequently, and as her disease melted away, we made these observations in her skin, again, showing that the JAK-STAT pathway was activated in her. It was that initial insight that led us to begin treating other patients, including one with a widespread refractory granuloma annulare. And indeed, indeed, in all three of these patients, their disease melted away over the course of months. Very importantly, we didn't see, and granted, right, this is a small data set, but we didn't see any adverse events in these patients. And the insight that oral therapy led to such a profound result made us wonder if topical tofacitinib would be important in more limited disease. And that's the patient that you referred to that we recently published in JAD case reports, where we had tofacitinib compounded as a 2% ointment, and we applied it to several lesions, but not all lesions in a single patient with a refractory granuloma annulare, and indeed all of the treated lesions melted away, and the one untreated lesion did not, which at least suggests that maybe topical therapy in some patients will be effective. And how common is it to be able to access compound and tofacitinib? So as you previously remarked, this is all off-label. And in the case of topical JAK inhibitors, there's not yet one available that you can even go to, you know, write a prescription and go pick up at CVS. This is when we talk about compounded JAK inhibitors, at least at this point in time, Uh, you have to go to a compounding pharmacy and have it made. And so here, access will be tricky except for a cash-paying patient who can afford a 30 or 60-gram tube, depending on the need. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So those are some good outcomes, and it's nice to see they're happening without the adverse effects. So speaking of some of these instruments that were used in the article, so you described the cutaneous sarcoidosis activity and morphology instrument a.k.a. the CSAMI, and there's also the granuloma annulare severity index, or GASI. And so for those that may not be familiar with these instruments that are mainly used in clinical trials, tell us about those. Yeah, so these are some really handy tools. So the, the cutaneous sarcoidosin activity and morphology instrument is a really nice tool. It allowed us to really put an objective assessment of how these patients were doing, and in fact, a numerical assessment of how extensive their disease was at baseline and how uh, they improved with therapy. And so the sarcoidosis tool essentially breaks down the body by anatomic location, and you rate whether there's lesions there or not, and then you rate how extensive they are in that particular anatomic area, and then you also rate how active they are, how erythematous and how indurated there are. 
And at the end of all that, you essentially have a grid and uh, you can add up the score and you can have an objective measurement of how extensive someone's cutaneous sarcoidosis is. And as I mentioned, how that changes over time. And it's a really, really handy tool. On the other hand, the granuloma annulary severity index is, um, in contrast, an unvalidated clinical scoring tool, but it was what was available in the literature, and we found it useful enough for our study to, to track patients. It's basically a very simplified version of the uh, cutaneous sarcoidosis activity and morphology instrument where you don't really have as much sophistication or detail on the way that you track a patient's disease, but it's just really a lot to put an objective number on their disease, uh, and so it was useful for us. In particular, in granuloma annulare, as we develop more effective treatments, um, something that may be useful down the road is to develop a, a better, more accurate, validated scoring tool for that disease as well. But they both are very useful for us in this context. Makes sense. So it's good to have some of these things to sort of standardize the evaluation of these patients. So speaking a little bit more about the JAKSTAT pathway, so we talked a lot about the existence of this pathway, but we haven't talked about the pathway. So you know, we know it's an important signaling pathway for inflammatory diseases. What do we know about how this pathway is implicated in a pathogenesis of cutaneous sarcoidosis and granuloma annulare? As you point out, the JAKSAT pathway is an important signaling pathway. Indeed, it's one of many pathways that communicates extracellular cytokine signals to the nucleus. As I mentioned earlier, the JAKSAT pathway is super important in mediating numerous dermatological diseases. In the case of sarcoid, Studies dating back to 2009 had implicated the JAKSAT pathway in mediating this disease, which is to say that this pathway was activated in tissues and blood of patients with sarcoidosis. This is what prompted me to use it in the first patient with sarcoid. It sounds like we have a lot to learn. So, you know, that brings to mind questions about constituent act activation of these pathways. Where might we see this pathway activated and where might it not be pathway be activated? So it's mentioned in the paper that the constitutive activation of the JAKSAT pathway in the peripheral blood cells is present in cutaneous sarcoidosis, but not in granuloma annulare. But in skin, as opposed to blood cells, the pathway is activated in both diseases. So what does it tell you? You know, what does this kind of information tell you in terms of treatment options for patients and response to therapy? And can you make any connection between the level to the level of general inflammation between these two diseases? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting question and something that we're really interested in learning more about in terms of the way that the immune system functions. So coming into this, we knew that sarcoidosis clearly is a systemic disorder and involves the skin, also internal organs, whereas granuloma annulare, as far as we know, only affects the skin. And so Although we weren't surprised to see that granuloma annulare did not activate the JAKSAT pathway in the blood, whereas sarcoidosis did, in some ways it was really reassuring that our assay was working properly. And so in terms of therapy, it's really interesting. As Dr. King mentioned before, you know, it suggests that in patients with systemic or disseminated or otherwise severe granuloma annulare that a oral approach or systemic approach to the JAK inhibitor might be most reasonable. Whereas patients with limited disease where it's only in the skin and we don't suspect that JAKSAT activation is present in the blood, that a topical approach may be much more reasonable. And that, of course, is going to be the majority of patients with granuloma annulare. Something that we're very interested now, and I hope we get to talk a little bit about later, is that not only do we expect that JAK inhibition will treat sarcoidosis in the skin, but we expect that similar signaling pathways are also activated in other internal organs as well as the blood. And we're optimistic that the therapy will not only work for sarcoidosis in the skin, but also sarcoidosis throughout the body, including internal organs. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, total sense. Thinking about the systemic nature of sarcoidosis as well and, and more continuous nature of GA. 
So, yep, that all makes sense to me. So, also in the paper, the signal regulatory protein alpha, so SERPA, is brought up. And that's something that has also been looked at and studied in different conditions. So, what I noticed there is that there was differential expression where it may be expressed more in some cases than others. And that may be related to the clinical features that are seen. So, you know, how can that differential expression be related to the clinical features of these diseases? And then again, back to response. How does that correlate with response to treatment in both conditions? Yeah, it's a great question. So this is an area that we're really interested in. As I alluded to before, you know, we're, we're really interested in drilling down on the molecular differences between these two disorders. And so in the study that we published in the JAD, we were slightly limited in the fact that we really only had molecular data from a single patient. But with that, we're actually able to do quite a lot. And that's how we found this SERP-alpha protein. So SERP-alpha is a protein that's expressed on phagocytes like macrophages, and it's involved in phagocytosis of other cells. And there's also some data from cell culture in vitro that it can be involved sort of in cell-cell interaction and cell-cell adhesion. And so there's two really interesting things about that. The first is that what we know about sarcoidosis when we look under the microscope is that it's these tightly packed granulomas composed of epithelial macrophages that seem to be intimately associated with each other. And so in some ways it makes sense that they're expressing this protein that is involved in cell adhesion, phagocytosis, and even actually multinucleate giant cell formation, which we occasionally see in sarcoidosis under the microscope. In contrast to granuloma annulare, in which the macrophages are aggregated, but not really closely with each other, they seem more interested in altered or degraded collagen that they sort of palisade around and they don't really have this tight, intimate association like they do in sarcoidosis. So to us, SERP-alpha protein is the first sort of insight into biologic differences between these two disorders that we can sort of hang our hat on and and start to drill down on even more. The second part that's really interesting is that SERP-alpha, while it's mainly known for its role as a target in cancer immunotherapy, has actually been implicated in sort of upregulation or activation of JAK-STAT signaling through a poorly defined mechanism. And so it also makes sense that we're seeing SERP-alpha upregulation in sarcoidosis, which we know also has higher levels of JAK-STAT activation. So it's something that we're really interested in and something we're actively working on. And so are there any conclusions that you can make from the non-cutaneous sarcoidosis data in terms of expression patterns? Yes. So as part of our work in uh, our recent article in the JAD, we not only looked at activation patterns of JAK-STAT signaling in the skin, but we also looked at some lung and lymph node tissue. And this was the first time that this was done in this way. We used immunohistochemistry for activated stat proteins as really our main readout. And although we expected that patterns of JAK stat activation and sarcoidosis in the skin would be similar to that seen in lung and lymph node, we really didn't know. And so we used this assay to look at some lymph node and lung biopsies, and we found that really there's this very distinct identical pattern of JAK stat activation in these other tissues as there are in the skin. And to us, this is really important because it sort of supports this hypothesis that JAK inhibition, for example, with tofacitinib, not only may work for cutaneous sarcoidosis, but is likely to also treat internal organ sarcoidosis. So what's next? That's the question. Given all this exciting research and early evidence that you're seeing of clearance for exciting, what's next? What other studies might be done to further understand the role of these pathways in both of these conditions, cutaneous sarcoidosis and granulum annulare? So it's a great question. So as we're starting to understand that pathway activation is occurring in the blood, it's occurring in lymph nodes and in the lungs of tissue from patients with sarcoidosis, we became more interested in how can this medication potentially be used to treat sarcoidosis, which as we know, inside the skin, outside the skin, there really aren't great treatment options. And so 
we actually had just reported a patient that was treated with tofacitinib who had involvement of her skin. She also had involvement of her bone, her lungs, and her lymph nodes. And she had sarcoidosis for greater than 20 years and then been on a variety of different treatments. And in this patient, we employed a modality, PET-CT imaging, in which sarcoidosis is an interesting disease and that PET-CT imaging, which is usually used for detecting cancer, can also detect sarcoidosis lesions throughout the body. And in this patient who had this multi-system disease went on tofacitinib, and we were able to do PET scan as well as some biomarkers in their blood and tissue analysis before therapy and then after six months of tofacitinib therapy. And really almost miraculously, the sarcoidosis, not only in her skin and throughout her body, really went into remission on the therapy. And that was a case report that we recently published separately in the American College of Rheumatology Open Rheumatology Journal. And so that, that really you know, got us even more excited about this. And so right now what we're doing is running an open-label clinical trial, 10 patients with cutaneous sarcoidosis and five patients with granuloma annulare. They're being treated with tofacitinib for six months. And for the patients with granuloma annulare, we're not only seeing how they do clinically, but we're also trying to learn a lot about them by studying tissue and blood from them. And for our sarcoidosis patients, we're doing the exact same thing, but we're also following their internal organ involvement. So how does their skin do and how does their internal organ involvement do on this therapy? And we're enrolling patients in the trial now, and we're really excited about it. So given all the excitement, which is really great to see and some early good results that you're seeing there, and with the knowledge that there's coming in ongoing right now, should clinicians begin to prescribe tofacitinib now off-label for their patients with recalcitrant continuous sarcoidosis or granular annulare based on this data? or should they wait for additional trials? This is an important question, and I think the answer is in how severe the disease is and what the effect is that it's having on the patient. Also to consider, is it like so many of the medications we want for our patients to use, tofacitinib and other JAK inhibitors are often difficult to get, in part because all of what we're doing now is off-label. But again, in the right patient, the battle with insurance is merited and worth the time and effort to try to get our patients better. We have to remember that sarcoidosis frequently affects internal organs. And so these are potentially sick patients and their options right now are really limited. And it may be that JAK inhibitors are going to be the first targeted and very efficacious therapies. We're certainly hopeful of that. So again, it's worth battling for these patients when they are in need of something different. And even our granuloma annulare patients, some of these patients have very widespread uh, disease. And while it may not be a morbid disease in the same sense as sarcoidosis, it can be disfiguring for folks with widespread disease. Even some limited disease can be disfiguring. And so making the argument that these patients need uh, treatment with these medicines can be made, and I think effectively. I think it's so wonderful that we're able to bring advanced therapies to our patients for which we really didn't have much to do for them in the past. So I'm very happy to hear all this is going on as a fellow researcher. I'm excited for your future studies and look forward to some of the outcomes. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners regarding the treatment of cutaneous sarcoidosis and granuloma annulare? and involving the JAK-STAT pathway? You know, I, I think what's really fun and amazing about all of this is that 
the future is really bright uh, for uh, for these patients because I think this work and the work of others will bring awareness to these diseases and will hopefully bring more research and discovery and hopefully this is this is just the beginning um, of of a different time uh, you know when we are able to move beyond here's a topical let's keep our fingers crossed that this works to here's a medicine and we have every reason to believe that it's going to be effective for you. It's just such a different time in dermatology when we are able to say with greater likelihood that something is going to work and also just be more targeted. And so we're excited about that. It's an important time for dermatology, certainly is. Well, Dr. Brett King and Dr. Bill Dansky, I certainly enjoyed speaking with you today for Dialogue in Dermatology and JAD Podcast. Uh, thank you for your investment in this recording. We'll look forward to talking with you both more. And so thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you.